Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, six years ago, the Westside Future Fund got underway with a mission, working to achieve equitable outcomes for Westside neighborhoods. So now we check in to discuss their progress and challenges how we pull people together going forward, how we show up is going to be super important. We didn't leave when the stadium opened. We didn't leave when the Super Bowl came. And we're not leaving right now. And we're, we're not going to be leaving. That's coming up next. But first, we now know Georgia has the highest rate of new coronavirus cases in the country. That's according to a new White House report obtained by the AJC. And the report calls Georgia's recent gains, quote, small, and fragile. The task force encourages Georgia officials to take steps such as closing bars and gyms and restricting indoor dining capacity. Now, a spokesperson for Governor Brian Kemp said the state continues to make, quote, strong progress. Meanwhile, at this time, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 241,677 cases right now here in Georgia. And the reported number of deaths 4,794. The number of hospitalizations has reached 22,429. And of those, 4,117 are ICU admissions. This, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. So as the state's cases continue to increase, the University of Georgia Athletic Association, via an email, is now asking donors to opt in or opt out for football tickets this season. The SEC, the conference the dogs are in, will play a 10-game conference-only schedule this year. It begins in September. Now, UGA officials say they've told donors that Sanford Stadium will reach no more than 25% capacity, which means only 23,000 of y'all will be allowed in the stadium. And speaking of sporting events, the 51st annual Peachtree Road Race is going virtual. The Atlanta Track Club making the announcement earlier today, citing concerns about, well, COVID-19. Now, originally, the race was moved from July to November. So the race will still take place on Thanksgiving Day between the hours of 12 a.m. and 11.59 p.m. Also, another first, the annual winning T-shirt design won't be revealed until the day before the race. And finally, more cities are enacting mask and facial covering executive orders. Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul issued an order requiring mask wearing or facial coverings mandatory in public buildings and spaces. Over in Smyrna, Mayor Derek Norton has issued an executive order requiring mask wearing or facial coverings in all public spaces. That goes into effect this Friday, August 21st at 1159 p.m. Now, according to both of these orders, Private businesses opting not to require masks must post a notice indicating masks are not mandated. 
This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. You know, about five and a half years ago, this program, well, we had only been on the air for a little over a month. But the Closer Look team headed to the Vine City and English Avenue neighborhoods. Part of our mission back then was to make sure we started reporting on what was taking place on the West Side because it was changing. And we wanted to find out what the West Side Works job training and community development program was all about. Now, at the time, the building was located about a mile from the site of the then new and pending Atlanta Falcons Stadium. I spoke to residents about the possibility of more development on the way. Laverne Woods was one of those residents. Woods says she doesn't like the idea of too much new development coming in because that usually means residents will be forced out. Yes, I'm worried about that. Yes, I don't like it, but, you know, we can't do nothing about it. Where would you go if that happened? Um, I couldn't tell you. Also, that afternoon, I walked the neighborhood with Frank Fernandez, who was then vice president of community development for the Arthur and Blank Foundation, and we talked about the commitment of the program. And not to overpromise, because this stuff is not easy. This stuff is hard, and it takes time. We're not going to, in two years, you know, the stadium will be done in March 2017. This project will not be done on March 2017. It's going to be 10 to 20 years. Will we have, hopefully, you know, use a football metaphor, some first downs? Yes. You know, we think this is one, we're, and we're working on others. But it's going to take a while. So you're not just going to build the stadium and run? No, that is not our intention. Well, that was then. This is now. So we're checking back with the efforts of West Side Works and some other programs to find out what's been working in the communities and what challenges still exist. So joining me now on the program, Saganthi Simon, Senior Programs Officer, and Ayanna Gabriel, also a Senior Program Officer for the Arthur M. Blank Foundation. Welcome to you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. Let's begin with what we heard in that clip. That was almost six years ago. I spoke to a resident, Laverne Woods, who talked about, you know, she wouldn't know where she would go if she had to, to move. What's been your assessment of the Vine City and English Avenue neighborhoods in terms of development and folks being able to stay in the community? And and Saganthi, I'll start with you. What's been your, through your lens, how are things going? Well, I think what you heard from Ms. Woods is this underlying thread of lack of trust. And that was not, that didn't happen overnight, that systems and policies and institutions failed the neighborhoods, right? You know, in this moment, in this movement, what we're talking about plays out in English Avenue, Vine City. That the neighborhoods were were cut off from economic development, that there was a lack of investment, there was a lack of strategy, there was a lack of working with the neighborhoods to really think about how to help them move to that next place, given the vast history. You know, every time we talk about the West Side, we start from this place of all that is wrong and what we don't lift up ever is all that is right and that history there and the legacy that the residents want to uphold. Um, And that's the North Star, right? Um, That you had this, you had all these civil rights leaders, you had Dorothy Bolden, you had 
uh, Lugenia Burns Hope, who started Neighborhood Union, you had a great foundation for people who believed in the West Side as a place, not that they were not that communities were forced there because of segregation, because they were, but they created their own economy, they created their own services, they created their own businesses, and that's what people want to see return. Um, and so starting from that place of this positive legacy for for positive redevelopment. And that's how we started the West Side neighborhood plan five to six years ago was to work with residents with the idea that you know, residents told us, don't do anything about us without us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been, that has been one of our guiding principles and how to do this work. And that our nature of how we work in the community has changed. Um, but building trust is something we come back to all the time because it's not about showing up one time. It's not about doing one program. It's not about moving in one direction. It's about consistently listening about health, education, um, economic inclusion from financial well-being to small business development and entrepreneurship to Westside Works, which is, you know, on the a workforce development um, mm -hmm. and connecting the neighborhoods back to the economic development and growth of the city. Um, and housing is a big piece of that. And we cannot do that alone. So, Ayana, I'll ask you the same question. Just through your lens, can you reflect on, you know, what you all have been able to do and then also the challenges that still exist? Yeah, thank you. So I want to pick up where Saganthi was talking about um, the trust that the community hasn't had for good reasons. When we started this work, uh, we were going through the neighborhood was experiencing a school closure with Thune Elementary, which had been a long legacy school. You had people who had three generations who had gone there, who had sometimes been taught by or educated by the same people. So it was really tough. And that was following uh, a couple years earlier of the closing Kennedy Middle School. And so I use those as examples that what we've learned and what we always have to hold to is, you know, the community was there before us. We've been working there for a while, but we know that there are a number of things um, that have happened that lead to that mistrust. And as Saganthi says, our job is to build relationships, really find out what the community wants and do our best uh, make those relationships happen in partnership with them. And so in terms of education, one of the, um, the key areas are, you know, when we think about opportunity and access, that doesn't happen with education, without education. Everybody cares about it. There are multiple stakeholders. And so for our education program, we uh, created a child-centered framework where we said, let's center the child because there are so many different institutions, so many different organizations, and let's center the child from birth through 12. And so we worked with a number of partners, everyone from the YMCA who moved their headquarters to Vine City and is supporting all early childhood providers in the zip codes we care about. Um, we work with uh, Georgia Tech Seismic, who's worked very closely with Atlanta Public Schools and the principals in the Washington Cluster. And then we work with a number of out-of-school partners. Do either of you feel like trust is something you're still building with the communities over there? Always. And I think one of the pieces over time has been there are always a few residents who show up consistently which is a very good thing but 20 to 30 people don't represent five to seven thousand people in these two neighborhoods of english avenue vine city right and i'm constantly pushing partners and asking ourselves too you know how do we reach all the people who feel so disconnected and that their voice doesn't 
matter that they don't want to come to a meeting, whether it's a community meeting, whether it's an MPU meeting. And the resident leaders will tell you this as well. Um, and it's happened over time. And the two neighborhoods are vastly different as well, Vine City and English mm -hmm. Avenue, and they have very different histories. And so really talking about, you know, residents are organizing and mobilizing themselves to form their own collaborative. And that's been very positive over the last few years uh, to see how they're coming together, how they're sharing information, how they're building trust with one another. But behind all of our, our strategies, you know, there are names and there are faces. And if I do my job well, I'm getting out there as much as I can to get to know people, to understand what they're experiencing, what their history is. And I've met so many residents who've shared and opened up to me. And that's a moment of grace, right, in terms of building trust. Can you share some of the conversations you've had with yeah. them? One of the residents who I've gotten to know so well, I've gotten to know her family. She texted me a picture of her car that she bought, and it's her first car in over 15 years. And the work she did where she said, I worked so hard and I couldn't have done this without all of the support that I had, right? Which is she got financial coaching. She was able to clear up debt. She increased her credit score from 550 to over 700. She now has a savings account when she, before she was unbanked. Mm -hmm. And this is because we have partners on the ground, like the On The Rise Financial Center, that's able to provide this, these services for free, but also to build trust, right? We had difficult conversations and difficult text messages, and I got to know her family and got to know her aunties and her uncles and, um, and spent time with her that she was able to, to do this work on her own. Um, that's the way this work is actually going to make an impact is when people who can be the best ambassadors, right, for themselves and for their community and to talk about what's working and also to give us that feedback and the, our partners giving the, us the feedback of when we're not meeting people where they well, are. Well, let's talk about that. And Ayana, you can uh, jump in here on this too. Let's talk about when you got that feedback of what wasn't working or feedback that says, hey, y'all need to slow down and understand where we're coming from and meet us as you just put it, Saganthi, where we are. So let's talk about some of that that feedback that wasn't so positive and how you all addressed it. Ayano, your thoughts when you get feedback that's maybe not so positive or yes, concerning? I would say um, that has definitely been a theme in education. Um, and, you know, I think the thinking about the trust, it's like first prove and then um, see if people will accept it. And so when, you know, we came in, Bethune Elementary School was closing, Hollis Innovation Academy became the new school that served the neighborhood. I mean, a lot of families and parents are like, we, we're not sure what this is about. We're still learning about what STEM and STEAM is. What does a pre-K-8 school look like? Mm -hmm. And I think what I've seen and we've seen over the last couple of years is that particularly with education, the parents' voice is what gets lost. Parents and families. Um, there's a lot of other entities that are speaking on behalf of parents. Um, and one thing that has helped move things along is when the parents and families are like, please listen to us. We know our lives. We know what our kids need. Um, and we've been able to really work with some groups. One of them is Parent Prosper, which was founded by two women in Vine City um, who are parents. And they have kids all across the schools. And I will tell you, and Saganthi, we have plenty of examples is that, you know, we have a lot of panels, we have a lot of convenings, and when the residents come and the parents come, their voice and what they say is often different. It's often been missing in the room. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that, you know, it's not perfect at all, 
But one of the things we've seen is that when we listen to the residents and we make sure that we're uplifting their voice first and keep them centered, the things move along. The voice you hear is Ayanna Gabriel, and I'm also joined by Saganthi Simon, both are senior program officers for the Arthur M. Blank Foundation. And we're talking about Westside Works. We're going to get into the Westside Future Fund in a moment. But we're talking about all the initiatives that have been implemented, on the, especially in the Vine City and English Avenue neighborhoods, and also what still needs to be done. Let's talk about the moment that we're in right now, which is obviously with this pandemic. Have you all had to shift a little bit and come up with some new immediate resources and initiatives? Food insecurity has been one of the topics that's not just in these two neighborhoods. Um, that's, you know, we've had this conversation citywide and metrowide. People who are living in these neighborhoods are also tend to be high risk for COVID exposure and often are not able to social distance or work from home. And mm-hmm. so, like you said, Rose, you know, they, a lot of the people who work here are deemed essential workers for the rest of us to be able to work from home. And so food, getting food to people through delivery, um, as opposed to picking up food, because that's been part of the problem of navigating all the federal and state benefits. Um, so Chris 180, there have been, they were delivering cooked, prepared food. They were also delivering farmers baskets. Uh, the YMCA was doing this at some of the similar work. Mm-hmm. Some of the residents who I said organized, um, so Integrity CDC, Makeda Johnson from Sisters Action Team, they have been working together to think about delivering food to really address the burgeoning homeless population that has been growing in Vine City English Avenue. We've seen an enormous growth in number of people who are contacting the Westside Empowerment Center, which is um, to provide adults with a a safe and healthy coaching and counseling for trauma and mental health and wellness support. There are a number of people who are lonely, who are depressed, who are anxious. Um, And then there's certainly a lot of people who are now in unsafe conditions. Um, So domestic violence, calls have increased about 50% Hmm. to that center. Um, There are families and children who were not in safe, in safe environments, but school was an outlet. Um, And so Chris 180 has been sending uh, community health workers to do wellness checks when they deliver food. And that's been critical to getting people the support that they need. You know, there's going to be this space in the next few months that's going to be incredibly scary about people who decided they couldn't work because the risk was too too great to them about evictions and utilities. Um, and so there's a lot of work happening in the city to help support families. Um, AVLF and Chris 180 are two partners on the West side who are working on that. Um, but I'll say those are the top top three and the, the third one of evictions and utilities I think is going to be growing over the next yeah, so um, as everybody's probably experiencing, um, in addition to everything that families and parents have to do, they also became educators um, starting in March. And so that there was a heavy lift and it was very quick um, for the education community. And so one of the first things that happened is we partnered with all five of the schools in the Washington cluster for Atlanta Public Schools and Georgia Tech Seismic is one of our key partners to just really help supplement what online learning looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, from a pedagogy standpoint, from elementary through high school, you know, this is still an area that education educators are learning about. 
you know, how do kids learn online? What is the best practice? What are they retaining? Uh, and so, you know, there needs to be a lot of support for the schools. And sometimes that looked like sending uh, packets home. Sometimes it looked like helping teachers figure out different professional development. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, looking forward and definitely from spring, we're thinking about, okay, if we're going to be in this for the long haul, because uh, originally people were thinking, no, we're going online quickly. What else can we do to supplement the learning? So we had a partnership, a pilot partnership. Um, I think you interviewed them with the Y, the YMCA steam truck and brown toy box, where they sent home STEM kits mm -hmm. to uh, children, so directly to the homes. And Georgia Tech Seismic also worked to send it directly to the homes to say what else can be in the homes for virtual learning. Um, and one thing I forgot to mention with virtual learning is there was a huge, huge lift close the digital divide. Um, we partnered with Power My Learning and other groups in Atlanta Public Schools to get laptops, to get devices, to get Wi-Fi to uh, families. I definitely want to get to the housing and housing affordability before we end this conversation, because correct me if I'm wrong, I know at least within the Vine City neighborhood, you're looking at mostly nearly, if not more than 70% of the residents are renters. And y'all correct me if I'm wrong, there used to be a high percentage of what they would call absentee, you know, owners of some of those properties. And there was some lot of blighted properties uh, in that neighborhood, especially. What's been the advancement in that area for you? Have you all been able to help in that area from yeah. renters to homeowners? So um, you're right, it's actually higher than 70 percent. We're looking at about 90 percent renters in both neighborhoods. So when that happens, right, when you don't control the land, then you can't really control some of the, the destiny about um, what redevelopment looks like. Um, and that's where the standing up the Westside Future Fund in partnership with the Blank Foundation and a lot of other corporate entities was about how do you raise capital very quickly to try and start holding on to some of the land so that you can you can actually redevelop and think about all of the different types of affordable housing and levels of affordability. And so the Westside Future Fund is our main partner in that work. And they have been leading a real estate committee to think about from philanthropic support. And I know you've talked to John Amon about this to encourage the right kinds of development at the right kinds of scale, right? Of 30% AMI, 60% AMI, 80% AMI and having mixed income communities. Well, you all can encourage it, but is it actually happening? It is moving in a faster pace now, um, now that they've actually acquired some properties and they're partnering with a number of developers, right? So Atlanta Habitat is in the two neighborhoods. That's been something we've invested in um, to move people into deeply affordable homes that they can own, right? After 30 years of, of paying a 0% interest mortgage, with a mortgage of about 500 to $600. But getting people ready for that takes some time, right? And talked about um, my friend who bought her car, it took her about a year and a half to get into that place of getting her debt down, getting her credit ready. Um, and so it's about getting people prepared so that when housing comes online, we're not telling people you're not ready for it. And not everybody wants to be an owner, right? Um, so giving people options we are also continuing to invest. So we've invested in that affordable housing strategy with the Westside Future Fund. We've invested in Atlanta Habitat. We're investing with Quest Communities. And I know you've talked to Leonard before. Mm -hmm. um, I have talked to so many people on the West yeah. Side 
Um, and we appreciate that. Well, um, <laughs> the community needs to know what y'all doing over there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and there needs to be more than one voice and more than one partner. And I think that's why, I mean, I appreciate you talking to so many different people because it's not about one organization doing all the work and it's not going to be about one pot of money. And that's why we, you know, we've committed over the years because knowing that what is happening is going to take a long time. Do y'all need to make sure then what you can't control, obviously you can't control economic development, but the city of Atlanta, the city council, and even the mayor can certainly be a little bit more influential for those for economic development that wants to come on the west side, particularly in those neighborhoods that you all have been working in. Um, we, you're absolutely right. We need very strong public policy um, and institutions to work together. Um, and so we've had that with um, the standing up of House ATL and with Terry Lee as the housing officer um, of looking at the West Side as a microcosm, but also as reflective of so many other communities in the Atlanta area, right? And so if we can show a path forward of what we can do well, like the anti-displacement tax bank, um, mm -hmm. and the Beltline is now replicating that. Um, so that is one program that we think has tremendous legs to it that we need to roll out in other parts of the city. But to your point about do we need help? Yes, um, there needs to be more than one partner. We believe very strongly as a foundation in the power of many. Um, but we do think there is some probably some donor fatigue on the West Side um, that people are thinking, well, the West Side has seen lots of love, like we need to move on. Mm -hmm. um, and especially in this COVID environment, right, where people's resources are getting stretched into lots of different areas. Um, and so to really talk about how this work isn't isn't just about the West Side. If we do this work well, then we can replicate, then we can move into other neighborhoods, that we can also seed fund, um, when I say we, the, the community, right? Seed fund all these different initiatives that need to happen in other parts of the city. And I just wanna add on to what Siganthi is saying. Um, we're in a hard time and we're leading into a harder time when you think about economic development. And so I would just encourage every entity, every stakeholder, every donor, public and private, to lean in further as we move into this um, economic uh, recession, as you know, the COVID numbers go up, because I think these are the times where staying close to the West Side, staying close to what's happening and staying fast for the policies that have happened will help push them through, you know, what's gonna be a tough period over the next couple of months. What do you hope for this work to continue in terms of leadership? I think, um, having a, not losing sight of, and this has been one thing that's been very uplifting to me personally as I do this work, is that the foundation has a commitment to understanding what long-term intergenerational poverty has looked like, what systems of racial injustice have looked like in the West Side, um, and that we're committed to that. You know, maybe we're not always leading, but we're supporting, we're seed funding, we are helping create networks. You know, we're helping convene people where people might not naturally want to collaborate. And that we're really thinking thoughtfully about what does equity look like moving forward and making sure we are uplifting organizations that have been doing the work for a very long time in this neighborhood um, and helping them build their capacity so that they can sustain their work over time. And we're not leaving right now. 
because we understand that if we do this work well, and this is the legacy of the foundation, and this is the legacy of, of Arthur and his family. Ayana, I'll give you the last word. Through your lens, what do you think needs to happen to make sure that the efforts that you all want to do will continue? I just have to say, I think Saganti said it perfectly in terms of uh, as a foundation, all the stakeholders were here for the long haul. I would say if there's a last thought I would give for people is the West Side is resilient. Um, the West Side is a wonderful community. It is a community that is loved and beloved. And um, if we just remember that as we are working with residents, for them to have agency on how they want to change um, and impact their lives, then we will land in the right place. Landing in the right place. Ayana Gabriel, also Saganthi Simon, both senior programs officers for the Arthur M. Blank Foundation. We've been talking about initiatives of the foundation and its programs and resources, especially for the English Avenue and Vine City neighborhoods. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. We got to get back out there. Thank you very much. Take care. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. What did you and perhaps the family do this weekend? Perhaps it did involve some sort of outdoor activity. I myself have reconnected with nature a lot. In fact, I've I've named a family of turtles in a nearby lake. That's for a different subject. More and more people are seeking solace outdoors during this time, but not every neighborhood has access to green space. And now there's a new proposal aimed to make land near the Chattahoochee River more accessible. It's called the Chattahoochee Riverland Study, and it's really simple. Connect more than 100 miles of land across the metro area from Beaufort Dam to Chattahoochee Bend State Park. And joining me now to talk more about this is George Dusenberry. He's a Georgia State Director at the Trust for Public Land and Walt Ray, Chattahoochee Program Director at the Trust for Public Land. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, someone listening says, ooh, it's like the belt line on the Chattahoochee River. Yes, no, kind of, sort of? I think that'd be probably a kind of, sort of. Um, <laughs> it's a completely different experience, but it is similar in that it's a project that we feel will change the way that uh, Metro Atlanta interacts with the outdoors, similarly to the way that the belt line did for in-town Atlanta. We think it's its ambitions are similar, its scale is similar, but yeah, no, this should be a transformative project that really changes the way that we look at the river, the way we interact at the river, and really improves the quality of life for millions of people in Metro Atlanta. I don't know, Walt, if you want to add anything to that? Yeah, go ahead, Walt. Yeah, Rose. I mean, in many ways, the Beltline has become Atlanta's defining public space. We think that the Chattahoochee Riverlands may become Metro Atlanta's defining public space. 
And so in that way, they're very similar, but of course, they'll be very different experiences. Well, let's talk about how accessible the Chattahoochee River is now. You all estimate that about a million people live within a 10-minute bike ride of the river. But do you think people realize that? Do you think folks really realize, I'm this close to the river? The more we work with the Chattahoochee River, the more I'm surprised by how few people really know that the river is there. You know, really too few people know that the river exists. Or if they do know that it exists, sometimes they have very negative impressions of it. They don't know where it is. I have talked to many people who think that the Chattahoochee River is a fictional river made up for a country song. No, Yeah, really? you know the song. You know that song. I know the song, um, but people think it's a made-up river. And I should laugh have, and I apologize. People have, made, have told me that they think it is a fictional river because it rhymes. So, you know, we experience more and more. You know, people either experience the river, you know, from the car driving over the bridge on the interstate, or they just don't even know it's there. And if they do know it's there, it's kind of hard to get to. And you have to sort of know how to navigate and where to, and where to experience it. Well, for our yeah. listeners who may not, before we get into the conversation, let's give the boundaries here or tell our listeners, you know, pretty much where the Chattahoochee River comes into Georgia. And it also, it's in part of Alabama, correct? Yeah, so the Chattahoochee River starts about a quarter mile, actually, from the Appalachian Trail up in the mountains. There's a little spring that uh, we've hiked to and wends its way um, down into Lake Lanier. Mm-hmm. And then when it leaves Lake Lanier is really the beginning of the 100 miles we're focusing on with this study. So it comes down uh, the dividing line between uh, Gwinnett and Forsyth County, cuts through Fulton County. Then it becomes the... Um, border between the city of Atlanta and Cobb County for about eight miles. And it is the western boundary of Fulton County, where it kind of wends its way all the way down to the Alabama line mm-hmm. uh, just at West Point. And then pretty much is the border between Alabama and Georgia all the way to the sea when it cuts through the Florida panhandle. When and how did the idea for the Riverlands project come about? And, and George, when did you all first start planning this study? Well, I'd say that the idea came about four or five years ago. Uh, The Trust for Public Land has been engaged with the Chattahoochee for more than 25 years. We have helped preserve 18,000 acres and 80 miles of riverfront along the Chattahoochee. We really got involved um, looking to protect the uh, ecological integrity of the river. And now we've begun to pivot. We've preserved all this land. Um, We have some good access points, but we don't have the infrastructure to kind of bring people to the river. About three years ago, we partnered with the Atlanta Regional Commission, with the city of Atlanta, and with Cobb County um, to begin a study of that 100 miles. And that really was born of TPL's desire to, you know, open up the Chattahoochee, increase that access, and activate it. And as part of that, we actually brought Walt on board as our Chattahoochee program director. In fact, Walt was just telling us this morning that his three-year anniversary is this Saturday. So wow. give you some sense about when it started. Well, let's get some clarity here for our listeners, because whenever you talk about project like this and people have concerns about are you disrupting the the natural environment? Let's address that first. Would you disrupt any animal life out there? Yeah, I think it was clear during the planning process, the 20 months that we were engaged in planning process, that many people were concerned about the ecology of the river. We certainly recognize that the Chattahoochee River is the metro region's sort of greatest ecological resource. So there are ways that you can do that. You know, the planning study, we were very deliberate and, and intentional. Um, we teamed with Biohabitats, um, a, a consulting firm, to help us understand where are the most ecologically sensitive areas and where do we avoid? And then what are the areas that are already compromised that could actually use restoration? And can we use a trail as a way to restore disrupted and, and just 
fragmented habitat. And when we talk about the habitat now, let's talk about people. Is there a chance that that this project might displace folks? I know we're talking about the Chattahoochee River, but, you know, even if it's a, a trail that may be a few miles off from where residents live, that's a concern that you all can understand. And obviously when we talk about development, particularly near areas that might be primarily low income or people of color, there's that gentrification that comes into all of this. Is this something that you all are considering and that you all are discussing that you definitely don't want to happen? I mean, that's an excellent question, Rose. And for the Trust for Public Land nationally, um, equity is kind of one of our pillars in terms of our land for people mission. If you're going to be preserving land for people, you really need to be intentional and listen when it comes to equity um, and addressing those concerns. Um, Walt, we, we've been that way throughout the study and Walt can kind of walk you through um, some specific areas where we dove deep into that. Okay. Right, so, you know, as George says, you know, the, the right answers, um, learning the right answers to equity questions begin by listening intentionally. And what we heard during the Riverland study is that equity was a key concern of many of our stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And as George mentions, it's a key pillar of the TPL's commitment. And we consider it to be of paramount importance I will say we built equity into the DNA of the Riverlands through one of our stated goals of a common ground for all. Um, many, many stakeholders um, place importance on the idea that the, that the Riverlands needs to be a place that welcomes our region's increasingly diverse de demographics. And that no matter what your background, age, physical ability, that you should find something that you enjoy at the Chai Riverlands, that you can imagine yourself, you can feel welcome, and that you can find something to love about the Riverlands. I will say one strength of the Riverland study is that it proposes more evenly distributed suite of river access amenities mm -hmm. along the entire 100-mile corridor. You know, today, the, the upper half of the Chattahoochee River land study area, sort of north of Peachtree Creek, you know, they have the best, the most robust, and the most frequent access points. And residents living in the northern suburbs really benefit from decades of investment, you know, both protecting the river, but also providing access to its banks. You know, for instance, the Chattahoochee River National Recreationary Unit and others. But south of Peachtree Creek is a very different story. There are extremely few access points in this 53-mile stretch. The Riverland study proposes to balance that access and associated amenities more evenly over the entire 100-mile corridor. And we see that as a great way to sort of equitably access the river, no matter kind of what part of it you live in. Okay, and we've heard that before, George and Walt, about key stakeholders being at the table, being not only just being at the table, but folks having their input and being listened to. We can point to so many developments that have been that have come online, and that's what they said initially, but it didn't really happen. So, what lessons are you learning from developments? And it includes a Beltline. Well, Rose, it's, it's interesting. Walt and I first met um, when I was the executive director of Park Pride. Mm -hmm. And we were creating a new program called our Park Visioning Program. And we hired Walt pretty much to, to build it and run it. And I don't know if you've heard about it, but it, its premise is you go into a community um, that you know, expresses an interest in reimagining their park. And you spend six to nine months working with them. Um, it's totally community driven to the point where we actually had some conflict with the Atlanta Parks Department because mm -hmm. they felt that we were putting too much emphasis on what the community wanted and not as much emphasis perhaps as what the city wanted. And so I think that Walt and TPL bring a culture of listening to this. So I just want to acknowledge that, just a, a little tidbit there. And I do think also that um, 
as, as you know, the study identified what those areas were in terms of listening. And because I think they identified four target areas where there may be some concerns about gentrification taking place, um, you know, we could be intentional in getting those communities early and we can listen. And this is a 20 to 25 year project. So we're gonna have the ability um, to slow walk those areas where we have those concerns, work with the community um, and make sure that the people who are trying to improve access to the river, to try to improve access to the outdoors, um, remain there and are, are able to enjoy it. So we, I think we bring a bit of a culture, if you will, of, of equity and concern that's been built up for more than 10 years um, between the two of us. And I think that you will see that reflected in the Chattahoochee Riverland study. And I think you will see that in reflected in the way that the Trust for Public Land approaches its work in terms of working with communities and working with um, local jurisdictions in the state to help bring the Chattahoochee Riverlands to fruition. We're, we're, we've, we're pretty excited about it, actually. We think this can be um, transformative and, and hopefully we will learn um, from those other organizations um, changes that we can adapt to make sure that we're doing a better job. So which one of you wants to answer the money question, which is what is the estimated cost of this and who's going to pay for it? So if we look at a project of this magnitude, remember we are looking at 100 miles of, mm -hmm. of river length and about 125 miles of trail, plus all the amenities and parks that go with that. You know, we really are looking at something that over the next generation might cost, you know, at least half a billion dollars and maybe even approaching $1 billion. And I know that people smile when I say that, I maybe get a little bit nervous, but I will just point out that that is less than the cost of the, of the current construction. Um, we're at the interchange of I-285 and Georgia 400, mm -hmm. where DOT is spending a similar amount to fix one interchange. So I think if we're looking at next generation infrastructure and the opportunities that that brings, you know, a half billion to a billion dollars seems like a steal. So in terms of you funding it, the answer is a lot of people in a lot of different ways are going to help fund the Chattahoochee Riverlands. Um, over the course of the Trust for Public Lands involvement, we've raised $50 million in private philanthropy already for our Chattahoochee work. Um, we anticipate to um, continue to raise funds philanthropically um, to help move this forward. And we also are fortunate that two years ago, um, the voters of Georgia overwhelmingly approved the Georgia Outdoor Stewardship Act, which mm -hmm. provides, you know, 15 to $20 million a year for land acquisition and park construction. We were fortunate in that the first year, um, there was funding for a camp and paddle trail and for a park at Chattahoochee uh, Riverlands Park included in that. And we anticipate the state, um, who's been a great partner in this, uh, to continue to invest as appropriate. We also just last week uh, saw a transformational national public lands bill, the Great American Outdoors Act passed and signed into law by President Trump, which will double the amount of federal funding and guarantee it um, for land acquisition and park development nationwide. And then we also see a lot of enthusiasm from our partners um, at the local level, uh, all the way up and down the 100 miles. There are from Douglas County to Carroll County to Forsyth County, Gwinnett. I mean, everybody is really interested in this project and putting a little bit in to help make it happen. It's going to take, you know, 20, 25 years, um, knock on wood, but we are confident that over the course of that time, um, the funding will be there and the excitement will continue to grow. Is there a economic development lens to this in terms of could this project help 
with workforce development. We understand about how this will promote conservation efforts or education. So I guess is the return on investment more about providing something for people or is there really an economic development value to this? It does. And I would say that the answer is both. Um, this Atlanta region is growing and will continue to grow. And for it to continue to grow, we need to continue to maintain the quality of life that people want. More and more people and businesses can locate anywhere they want to, mm-hmm. and they want to live where there's a great quality of life. And what's so amazing about the Chattahoochee Riverlands is you're basically talking about creating a 100-mile almost national park going through the heart of Metro Atlanta. So I think that at that um, macro scale, there definitely is an argument that as we're competing with the Portlands and the Denvers and the other cities around the country um, to attract um, you know, business and attract talent, that the Chattahoochee Riverlands will help in that regard. But also on the micro scale, and I'm gonna kind of defer to Walt on this too, there will be opportunities up and down that 100 miles um, for us to both help uh, communities that perhaps want some local economic development, but also uh, perhaps some um, workforce job creation opportunities. I don't know, Walt, if you want to talk about that. Right. So, you know, we talked to hundreds of people and individuals during our 20-month-long planning process. But I swear, like, for every one person that we talked about who wanted to go kayaking or hiking or cycling or exploring or some outdoor adventure part along the Chattahoochee Riverlands, just as many really just wanted to enjoy a cup of coffee or a good meal whilst while watching the activity along the Riverlands. You know, people want to be able to wake up in a hotel and sit on their balcony while they watch kayakers, you know, paddle by on their morning, with their morning jaunt. Um, obviously, the, the banks of the Chattahoochee River are really largely protected from commercial development, and we have certainly benefited from that. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of key nodes that you could repurpose um, for a sort of a commercial node where you could have some smart, almost kind of surgical economic development opportunities in key, in key areas. Um, to activate the river in that way. For you mean like a king of pop stand or something much bigger? I think maybe like a little village, <laughs> like a restaurant with a shop and a few rooms for rent above it. Or, you know, uh, like it <laughs> Can you see some people saying, no, man, I like my Chattahoochee the way it is, you know, without all this. People do. People <laughs> do like the Chattahoochee the way it is. People also wish they could access it better. Yeah. yeah. And Rose, if, if you go towards that southern part, I mean, a lot of the river is just not being used at all. So Mm -hmm. I don't think we're looking to transform people's experience. I mean, maybe you have a few um, folks who fish there, um, but otherwise it really is about getting people to the river and people protect what they love. Mm -hmm. And by, you know, helping people access and fall in love with the Chattahoochee River, we really feel that um, this is going to benefit both economically, but also ecologically the region by, by strengthening that bond that we have with our our river. Is increasing the number of access points the primary focus here? Put the commercial and economic development aside, but the the, the key point it sounds like is that you want to obviously increase access points to the Chattahoochee. Is that the primary goal here? Yes, it is. Uh, Let me tell you a story. We're um, working with the city of Atlanta to build Cook Park on the west side of Atlanta. Um, We're really excited about it opening a couple months. We've raised 13 plus million dollars to help make that happen. Mm. And as part of that effort, we got a grant from the National Recreation Foundation. And we wanted to bring kids from the community to the Chattahoochee River. And we couldn't do that in the city of Atlanta. We literally had to put these kids on a bus, drive them all the way up to the Chattahoochee Nature Center in Roswell. And we love the Chattahoochee Nature Center. I mean, it's a great 
amenity um, for the river, for the region. Um, but the fact that we had to, to do that when they were living like three miles from the Chattahoochee River just really points to the need for the access points. I think Walt can kind of dive into the number of access points that we're hoping to create, but that really, I would say, is, is the biggest driver behind this effort. Yeah, Rose, I think one of the big overarching goals is to introduce the Metro Atlanta to its long hidden riverfront. Mm -hmm. uh, most people don't know that we even have a waterfront, but that Chattahoochee Riverlands beyond providing access is also an opportunity to establish a new positive identify, identity for the Chattahoochee River and its banks and become a real source of civic pride and become a, a metro region destination that mm -hmm. draws people from all over the country and the world for that matter. Um, but access points and, and connected trails, trails where you can actually get from one place to another place, I think are all part of that strategy. And just for clarity, then who would be responsible for, I guess, the maintenance and, and you know, bridges or you have some paved parts? And also, yeah, that's a good question. I, I just thought of it, which I didn't have in my script, and I apologize. Making sure that this <laughs> is also accessible for those with, who are differently abled to enjoy the Chattahoochee as well. So the Chattahoochee Riverlands goes through um, seven Metro Atlanta counties and 19 Metro Atlanta cities, plus the National Recreation Area and state parks. So each of those jurisdictions would, would have control over both building and maintaining that property. Um, we at TPL are very, interested, are very interested in ensuring to the best extent possible that we have a very consistent user experience along all those different jurisdictions, and we will do what we can to, to make sure that that happens. Um, but really, I mean, every different county and city and, you know, agency will, will take care of their own. So we have the Chattahoochee Working Group, which was the advisory board, you know, the advisory kind of platform to the escape team for this. And, you know, on there, we have Amy Copeland um, with the Amy Copeland Foundation, mm -hmm. who has really um, held our feet to the fire in terms of making sure that we talk about and not just talk about, but actually ensure um, completely ADA accessible you know, mainline trails and kayak launches and, mm -hmm. and all that stuff. She's an avid kayaker and she taught us about, you know, how, uh, you know, a, a quadriplegic can get in a kayak and can enjoy it. Um, and we also had a river ramble experience um, at the Paces, Paces Mill unit of the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area, where we invited people um, living with disabilities and who were, um, I think living with blindness even to mm -hmm. get to under so that our, our consulting team could really learn how people living with disabilities need to interact. And we baked that into the DNA of the Chattahoochee Riverlands as well. Um, we really do believe that every age and ability um, should be able to enjoy the Chattahoochee Riverlands. But one thing we actually really learned that was interesting, and I think we all knew this, I just don't know that I'd, it ever really resonated with me quite to this level. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you make the Riverlands or, or any public investment accessible for those living with disabilities, it'll actually be easier for all of us to use, mm -hmm. you know, and as we age and as we start using walkers or canes or having to slow down a little bit, um, you know, my dad, the strong outdoorsman, you know, now uses a walker <laughs> to go hiking. Mm -hmm. um, so considering that if, if we make it accessible for those living with disabilities, we'll make it easier and more enjoyable really for the entire population. Mm -hmm. and we are committed to seeing that through on both the land trails and the water trails. And gentlemen, as we wrap up, it's 2020. Of course, folks probably listening saying, okay, you sold me, or some saying, okay, I'll wait and see. When will we be able to see some development as it relates to the Riverlands project? Well, it's our belief that five years from now, there will be some there there with the Riverlands. 
Um, we are in the process of working um, internally at the Trust for Public Land, but also working with our partners to identify those opportunities that we can execute and move forward first. Um, our hope is to introduce a camping and paddle trail um, on the northern part, which you know is a little easier just because the access currently exists. Mm -hmm. We also are looking at opportunities in Cobb County, the Cobb Atlanta border. We really want to put a bit of an emphasis there. Um, we believe that the first, if you will, Riverlands Trail Park uh, will come to fruition there. And then, you know, looking further down into Douglas County, Carroll County, and um, and parts to the south, um, Walt's been leading an effort in terms of trying to figure that out. And we'll have to be nimble because um, there are a lot of variables out there. Um, but, but five years from now, I think you'll be able to experience it and you'll just see a version from there. And also, Walt, is there a chance that some of the proposed project could be modified due to cost. One thing we can't control, obviously, is the market and the economy. Yeah, I mean, I think with what George said, you know, with the Chattahoochee Riverland study not complete, the Trust for Public Land is proud to champion efforts to realize the implementation. But we know that that means coordinating closely with all the partners and the jurisdictions up and down the river. And some will be more nimble and quick, and some might need more help. And we're there to sort of partner in whatever way is appropriate. And I mean, we're right. I think in five years we will have some Riverlands. But let me just emphasize that, you know, what was proposed in the in the Riverlands study isn't a plan. It's not a, a construction document. It's a bold framework mm -hmm. that will need to be massaged over the over the years and probably decades to respond to you know existing conditions or you know private property ownership concerns or you know the evolving discussion that we have with with what and where exactly. So as we get more detailed, yes, the, the plan will evolve to reflect you know, current discussions and conversations and existing conditions. George Dusenberry, Georgia State Director at the Trust for Public Land, and Walt Ray, Chattahoochee Program Director at the Trust for Public Land. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I really Keep us Thank posted you, on this project. Thank you, Rose. It's very exciting. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.